Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education by Kate Colbert and Joe Salustio with contributions by Elvin Freitas is now available for pre-order on Amazon. Get your Kindle edition or your softbound book. It's going to be amazing. Welcome back, everybody. It's your time to add up on the Ed Up Experience podcast, where we make education your business. Dr. Joe Salusio back with you on another episode of Ed Up as we fast approach 200 presidents interviewed, 200,000 downloads. Can't wait to pass 500 total episodes. And of course, we're writing a book called Commencement, the Beginning of a New Era in Higher Education, available now for pre-order on Amazon. We're going to give you all the tips, ideas, and uh, insights from uh, over 100 college and university presidents that we've interviewed on this podcast. It's going to be incredible. Thank you for your support. Um, I'll try to stop the self-promotion just long enough to introduce my co-host here with me today. We're going to have another great episode. You've heard him before, ladies and gents, and you'll hear him again because he's scheduled into the future on a bunch of episodes. Here he is. He's Jeffrey Roche, and he is Senior Vice President at Core Education. Jeffrey, welcome back. Thanks, Joe. Good to see you. I feel like we just saw you the other day. You were on the other day with me, right? We did one the other day. I was, but the question is, did I have hair then or not? No, I, I can't remember. But you didn't have your EdUp mug, but I think you have your EdUp co-hosting mug now. Um, I, so, do have my, I do have my co-hosting mug. I don't have it here right now with me. But. Well, that's bad. You know, we got to work on that branding representation when you do these, uh, Jeffrey. We'll have to talk after. Uh, but I'm excited to have you back. Uh, absolutely. You have so many great insights on what's happening in, in higher ed. Um, and uh, we have somebody with us that's doing incredible work um, and really an innovative model, uh, a, a piece of... Uh, uh, of innovation that uh, nobody, I haven't seen anybody else do anything like it. So we're going to bring him in. We're going to let him just go to town and tell us all about it. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. His name is David Helene, and he is CEO at Edquity. David, what's happening? Hey, Joe. Thrilled to be here, and thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm, we're, we're glad to have you because you're doing pretty, pretty awesome work that uh, hasn't been done or nobody's doing, or at least not in the way you are. Let's level set. The audience is sitting here going, hmm, equity. Let me look that up. But let's hear it from David. What is equity? What do you do? How do you do it? Yeah, absolutely. So the fundamental problem that we're focused on is the fact that about 50% of students deal with issues like food or housing insecurity across the country. Those are actually stale statistics that are pre-inflation, pre-pandemic, right? So we know that these issues are getting much worse. Uh, and they also uh, intersect the fact that financial issues are the number one reason that students are uh, either unenrolling or fail to matriculate to post-secondary uh, uh, post classrooms. So our work at Equity is fundamentally focused on streamlining access to approximate social safety net to make sure that students have the financial resources they need to be successful. And that primarily takes the form of emergency cash grants. So we are right now the only end-to-end -end administrator of emergency cash grants or emergency aid uh, to students where we have an application, a decision, a payment, and a reporting apparatus for partners where we have administered about $150 million to students in the last year and on average 25 hours from application. So uh, we are getting money to students within the time horizon that they need to deal with either getting their water utility bill shut off or if they're facing an eviction proceeding. Um, we get them the money they need to stay enrolled and to stay in, uh, successful and uh, get their credential. Okay, so 
Was this a pandemic born business, David? Did you tell me a little bit about the story? Um, because of course, when you go right to it, if you're listening to this, yeah. you go, oh, wow, this this would have been, you know, did the pandemic create the need for this type of business? Were you working on it beforehand? Talk a little bit about the formation of the Edquity idea. Yeah, absolutely. So this actually wasn't born in the pandemic. Uh, it was certainly uh, accelerated during the pandemic. But the, the problem statement that I laid out, uh, financially induced dropout, right, structural basic needs challenges that students are facing, this has actually been an issue, been an issue for, for decades, right? And um, to the credit of post-secondary institutions, for the last uh, decade or so, they've sort of been re-engineering themselves as social services entities in many ways, right? So they've been standing up things like food pantries, uh, uh, voucher programs. Um, you know, they've been installing caseworkers on campuses and uh, they've been building these sort of grassroots emergency aid programs um, where they've had these cash grant programs for students to try to cash them when they fall financially uh, and make sure that they don't drop out. Um, but as you can imagine, post-secondary institutions, they are not necessarily set up to be the most nimble. Right. They are not set up to be able to review applications, to do so in a way that is often uh, not stigmatizing or doing what we call performing, requiring students to perform poverty. Uh, it's really burdensome to staff. It also you know, really creates a lot of secondary trauma for folks and having to read all of these applications, talking about all of the tremendous hardships that students are facing. And most importantly, they do it too slowly, right? So even though they've been standing up these programs, the average time to get cash out was 13 days from application. Right? And, if, and if I'm about to get pushed out of my home or I'm about to see my utility shut off or I can't get to school because I don't have access to transportation, um, these are all time sensitive issues that require payment today. So uh, the, we actually had built equity in 2019 um, we did uh, do our first partnership in the wake of a natural disaster. So we mm. did uh, face tremendous volume and scale quite quickly. Um, but uh, our launch in 2019 in partnership with Dallas College uh, was uh, helped prepare us for the uh, incremental rapid scaling that was required in 2020 onward, right? So uh, the CARES Act and the subsequent two stimulus bills infused $32 billion of federal funding uh, into the system uh, directly geared toward emergency student aid to try to help students weather the pandemic. Uh, so we have seen tremendous growth and scale over the last couple of years, but the problem statement uh, actually preceded the pandemic and will continue onward even after these federal funds have been exhausted. Fantastic. Let me uh, ask one more real quick one, Jeffrey, before you jump in. Uh, and David, you said something that I think um, is it, it needs to be restated because it's so true, but the way you said it, um, uh, was perfect. And uh, I'm going to say what that is, but I'm going to tell you, uh, last week I was interviewing a college and university, uh, a university president, a community college president. And she goes, and she was uh, retiring at the end of this year. And she goes, um, never in my time as presidency, did I think I'd end up in the food business. They have four pantries on their campus. They're, they, they extended from one to two to three to four and the services around basic needs. And I thought that comment just was just mind blowing when you think about it. Universities are social service agencies in many ways have had have had to be because of the learning loss. The you know there's learning loss, and when you have learning loss, then you you're behind on where you wanted to be, which means your basic services are you know there, there's internet access and food and water and all these things that have come up. And colleges didn't we weren't in the business of that, but now we are, and it's kind of like this weird spot. That's totally right. I mean, it, it's really remarkable what I've seen community college presidents in particular do, right? Folks who are 
literally standing in, in uh, physical locations, handing out laptops at the beginning of the pandemic for students, right? As we were transitioning to remote environments, mailing out hotspots, uh, like you said, becoming experts in sort of, uh, you know, the food business and food supply. Um, it speaks really to some of the, the policy failures, quite candidly, on how we are making students pay for and finance their education, uh, and also the lack of uh, sort of access to affordable cost of living around college campuses, right? Um, you know, we've seen just in the last year alone, um, you know, rent prices has, have increased 14%, food prices have increased 11%, right? The cost of living just to survive is so high these days. Uh, that you know, students are really struggling to uh, make ends meet. So I give institutions a lot of credit, right? Because they're not really financed to provide these supports to students, and yeah. yet they're trying to do the most with the least. Interesting, Jeffrey. Well, David, uh, impressive, uh, impressive work. But but what I'm really curious about, because I didn't I didn't hear you share this, but what led you personally? to want to start this is is there a story part of that 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 would that you would be willing to share because obviously sure. to me there's a mission behind it and i'm just curious about what what led you to that mission yeah absolutely um so i started my career doing what i would deem to be the opposite of what i do today uh, which is that i was a bank lobbyist uh, so i was lobbying on behalf of the largest financial institutions in the country around capital liquidity regulations and found myself quite quickly wanting to really advocate for and support many of the communities that are historically disenfranchised by those institutions. So, um, you know, 2013, I started a nonprofit organization uh, that was focused on the intersection of financial capability uh, and ongoing sort of wealth building. But for a student audience, I was thinking, what is actually a practicable experiential learning point for a student in, who's in high school? And set uh, on sort of the college education decision. And this was at the time in sort of 2012, 2013, where we were really starting to have uh, these bigger conversations about student debt. And whereas, you know, when I first started that journey and thinking about, oh, student debt avoidance, uh, what I sort of began to understand is I was in the classroom with students, helping them try to forecast what their college experience might cost is that the cost of living that is advertised by a college campus versus what is experienced by students is often about 30% off, right? So as a student, <gasps> I could go through a perfect financial planning exercise and find myself fundamentally insolvent, right? And given how financial aid is allocated, right? And what is allowed right, with regards to plus loans and uh, subsidized loans, unsubsidized loans, you know, maximum allowances, uh, the students I was working with, right, these are students in Title I high schools, low-income students, <clears throat> largely on free and reduced lunch. Uh, the sort of calculus was that either you can get into some of the quote-unquote like top 100 schools that will give you a quote-unquote free ride, right, or you have to go to CUNY. And I say CUNY because I operate in Brooklyn, New York. That's where I, I was born and raised and currently reside. Um, right. And that's not really a choice. That's a false choice. That is, you know, you are forced to go to a, uh, an institution that is proximate because of the cost that you have to sort of internalize and, and grapple with. Right. And if that's the case, then this becomes two things. Right. It becomes a case where this is a policy failure. And over time, you have to structurally advocate for policy reform. But in the short term, knowing that students are matriculating, you need to figure out how you streamline access to the safety net. Because for so many of these students, it's going to be an inevitable need, right? It, for perhaps no fault of their own, they're going to need access to a food pantry, right? They're, they may need access to a housing voucher. They may need some sort of social work support or mental health support. So that was sort of the learning journey that I went on. And I ran that organization for a couple of years. I first took vacation time to run summer programs, then finally left 
to run that nonprofit in a full-time capacity for 18 months. And that journey went and destroyed that career. It's helpful to hear because it speaks to sort of the personal mission that you that you bring. Um, you know, it, it's really interesting uh, because when you look at your background, Yale graduate, um, you know, coming into the space of, of really establishing equity. Um, you know, I'm curious, you know, from your humble beginnings uh, at Yale, um, how have you used that where, where many people would probably subscribe to the fact that that, that, that is not normally an institution uh, that, that would historically have equity, uh, particularly among, among the student body. But I'm curious, you know, if you can share a little bit from that, because obviously education continues to change um, and equity, uh, you know, equity is, uh, you know, transcends everything. Um, but I'm just curious about, you know, about that as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think some of my experience at Yale influenced how I think about these issues, right, is that, um, you know, talent is universal, opportunity is not. And the opportunity for, for the folks who could go to, equity, uh, to, to Yale, um, yes, certainly there were um, some low-income students at school, but it wasn't from a lack. It wasn't because of, an, a, of ability that the majority of the population uh, was not from low-income backgrounds, right? It was due to broader structural trends. Um, and we as a society disproportionately focus on national narratives related to Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, when the reality is that community colleges, open enrollment institutions, like those are the institutions that are really providing the next generation of the labor market, right, is making us competitive as a, as a country is actually going to be responsible for narrowing equity gaps over time. So, yes! Um, it's not to say I didn't have a tremendous experience at Yale, but um, I did have my eyes opened about sort of what the structural breakdown of post-secondary education is uh, on the other side of Yale, right? So uh, it's not to say that I have bad things to say if I'm my alma mater, but um, I do think we spend way too much time focused on Yale and other institutions like Yale because for us to solve a lot of these sort of national issues that we're facing, it's to make sure that the other institutions are funded correctly. Right, to make sure that students at other institutions are receiving education they need in a way that allows them to complete, right? To make sure that their basic needs are covered and that financially they're not worried about their ability to, to, to get up their, their next meal or if they're gonna be safely housed or sheltered. So um, that's sort of how I think about my own modern concept, context of the work that we're doing. Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education by Kate Colbert and Joe Salustio with contributions by Elvin Freitas is now available for pre-order on Amazon. Get your Kindle edition or your softbound book. It's going to be amazing. You know, um, it's a good reminder because like two, I think it's 2% of students are enrolled in the Ivy League. It's like some really small percentage. Exactly. 98% of students are enrolled in other types of institutions. Exactly right. Um, so when you're talking, we, we do, you know, the amount of um, attention that we can bring to institutions that represent the smallest number of, of uh, students is, is pretty amazing when you look at how the infrastructure is built around that, U.S. News World and Report rankings and all these things. But we don't talk about the other 98%, right, as much as we should. And that's what Equity does. It makes you, it helps the 98% of people that are going to need, that are, that are, 
I don't know what working learners or have these considerations that maybe the 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 2% don't have that are attending Ivy League. What I find interesting, and I went through this too, David, my last institution was a um, all master's degrees. So you're talking about people who are working that are making income and leveling up. But we had, um, when the pandemic hit, we did the whole pandemic fund thing, emergency funds, and we funded it and we got some money in and people, you know, had lost jobs and were asking for this or asking for that the amount of staff time we put into it of how to organize it, who would be eligible, how would we decide on who gets it? And w was it equitable? Was the decision-making process equitable and who should be involved and how often do we need to meet? And it was, and, and we did distribute it, but the time from when need hit to distribution of money and the amount of staff time that went into it, an important issue, right? Not, it's not like it's unimportant to put staffing resources into something that's going to help you retain your students and and give them something but the amount of staff time that went in just for a little bit of money was massive incredibly massive there's a data-driven piece of equity right where you can measure you can distribute and measure outcomes and reduce the overall staff attention that's absolutely right and you know to your point it's good to put staff resources on initiatives that are important but um there's a massive opportunity cost to the exercise that you just described right i mean uh, these are trained experienced uh empathetic professionals who could otherwise be student facing right doing higher leverage work that is also data-driven work uh, and that is where we come in right so we have built an application uh, that has a decision-making framework that is grounded in some of the best practice research on the issue of uh, student basic needs and security. So the way that we actually assess students is based on components related to housing, food, transportation, childcare, physical and mental wellness, access to learning resources, as well as other variables about how uh, the funds might impact them, right? Particularly when you're dealing with a scarce resource environment, we want to make sure that the, the resources are going to be deployed in such a way that they're actually going to be able to move the needle on the issue area in question, right? And uh, we're able to do that and create apples to apples decision making uh, for students, right? Um, and also alleviate staff from having to get in this committee structure or, you know, meet biweekly or pour over applications, right? In fact, we can make this data actionable so that in, instead, uh, what that time is spent toward is actually reaching out to and connecting with students about the known issue areas that they're experiencing, right? So in doing it in that way, we've been able to get cash assistance out to the students that represent the greatest amount of need, but in a way where the, the funds are actually able to touch the issue areas they're experiencing and do that in about 25 hours time. So, um, and it's not just about, it's not just about distribution of money because there's a, there's a retention piece to this, right? You, you, when somebody has something happen, um, they tend to use that as a uh, a justification for why they can't continue with school. It doesn't Absolutely. matter what the something is, and it doesn't matter how much it is. Sometimes yeah. it just matters that it is. And you go, oh, you know, I have this thing. I just can't do school right now. It's too much. And so it's not as if we're, this technology equity is being added and there's no ROI. There is ROI. There is retention. There's enrollment. There's all these pieces that well pay for itself when you use a technology like this. Can you talk about how you measure that ROI and how you communicate that to colleges and universities? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we run a number of research experiments with partners. Um, one that was actually a regression discontinuity exercise uh, in a randomized environment. And we found that students that have been funded by equity have graduated at twice the rate as those that were not funded, right? We've also run separate study. That was at Compton College with an award size of about $250. 
Um, we've run similar uh, exercises with partners that include Southern New Hampshire and others that have found um, you know, anywhere from three percentage point to 11 percentage point semester over semester improvements in student retention, right? So Wonderful. These, these are material improvements. Now, granted, you know, you could argue that the exercise of giving cash to students, equity or not, should yield an ROI. Um, Mm -hmm. But one of the only studies that has been rigorously assessed in, in this space was a, a randomized control trial run at Tarrantown Community College. And what they found is that emergency aid did not have any impact on student completion, right? And, um, you know, the argument that we would make is that this is because of the means of administration, right? The policy instrument is correct. The deployment of emergency aid is correct, but the way you do it matters, right? The speed with which you do it matters, the assessment framework with which you do it matters, and that's why we think we're able to tangibly deliver value to our partners. Um, you know, if you look at a, a comp or if you look at uh, an analog, right, you can look at programs like emergency rental assistance or unemployment insurance, right? And certainly those programs are critical. We know that rental assistance has been so, so needed for keeping, you know, literally millions of families in their homes during the pandemic. But for months, the dollars fundamentally couldn't get out, right? So. That was the right, right, correctly prescribed policy instrument. But if the money is not getting where it needs to go, of course, it's going to have a no effect, right? So as we think about these programs, the administration or the infrastructure of that administration really matters. And we actually view ourselves as an infrastructural service, right? Like we are infrastructure for when you need to administer various programs year over year. And once it's set up, it's set up. And you have that infrastructure and you're well positioned to get your students the support that they need. I always, Jeffrey, I want to bring you back in, but I want to say how that's, that's great, right? Because I always talk about how the student and their life moves faster than higher ed moves. And we're one of the businesses that, that doesn't talk enough about how we can move as fast as the student. You know, I mean, you talk about retail shopping, they move as fast as the consumer. You can boom, 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 do anything you want. Higher ed, we, we don't just go, oh, wow, this committee is really slow. We should not have it. We, we don't do that. We try to justify why we should have it. And Jeffrey, I, I know you talk about the health system a lot being also sometimes a little slower than it should be, but you know, the student and the consumer move fast and they expect fast results. Yeah, absolutely. You know, David, I, I'm curious though, you know, as you know, obviously I, I saw when you, when, when you first received your, your seed funding, uh, one of the things that, that was referenced was uh, a study that you were doing with, with WGU. Um, and, and, you know, I'm curious to hear a little bit of what you've, what you've learned from that, because obviously WGU has been an in a more innovative player in this higher education space with phenomenal results and, and, and a plethora of impact. But I'm also curious uh, as part of that, if you can share around, you know, there, there's a difference at times when you when you work with a community college and you work with a public institution and then you work with a private. And sure, I am the first to say uh, that I think there there's a misnomer in our society that only wealthy kids go to private higher education. Sure. Uh, because actually, if you if you break down the data, uh, generally liberal arts private uh, higher education institutions actually have more students of need than some publics. And it's really interesting. Sure. And I'm just curious if there's anything from an insights perspective you can share that you've learned in your work. I know there's kind of a lot of questions in there and, and Joe's like, oh boy, here he goes. But I'm just curious from your perspective there. Yeah, those are all great questions. I mean, to your point, WGU is one of the more innovative institutions in the country, right? It's, it's sort of, um, it's emblematic in how they've grown and supported students. 
Um, the the research design of that changed over time because we were just going to get that off the ground when the pandemic kicked up. So uh, we found more qualitative insights and quantitative insights in doing research work with them and found that one of the key insights was that students who were delivered emergency need had tremendously greater affinity for the institution, right? They felt supported, right? They felt that there was a culture of care for them. So that was a really interesting insight that we got from the survey design that we were doing uh, in our partnership with WGU. Um, you know, the, the private-public uh, divide that you mentioned is, is, I think, quite fascinating, right? It's, it's, there is this national perception of demographic composition of these institutions. I think in some form and fashion that sometimes translates to the institutions themselves, right? Because we've actually found that we've had a lot more traction with community colleges. Certainly that makes sense because of the demographics of who is attending community colleges, right? You're typically dealing with quote-unquote non-traditional. I have no idea what that word means anymore, but, uh, you know, uh, larger populations of adult uh, learning, uh, or adult learners. Um, you know, uh, we work with a lot of MSIs and institutions that are disproportionately serving uh, Latinx students as well as Black students. Um, and we're starting to see more recognition among uh, four-year institutions as well, right? So private and public. So we now have about five four-year institution partners, uh, one of which is a private. And I think, you know, Jeffrey, the dynamic that you shared is one that they're starting to realize as well, right? Is that they are seeing a material uh, sort of scope of need among the student population that they're serving. And a lot of these partnerships are uh, early information gathering exercises for our partners, right? They're starting to take a step back and say, you know, we think that there actually might be a lot of need here, right? Uh. Uh, but, they, but they don't have a lot of data collection infrastructure for understanding how many of their students are dealing with issues like food insecurity or housing insecurity. So one of our theories of change, right, is that we can not only move the needle on outcomes and, and sort of student success, but we can collect the data necessary to sort of bear out the scale and scope of the problem that we're dealing with, right? And in doing so, we can advocate for and justify incremental investments, not only into you know, more emergency aid. And we have seen, um, you know, state-based investments in the last couple of years in Washington and California into emergency aid. Uh, we've seen federal proposals for steady state emergency aid in both the Senate and the House. So, you know, we think that we are a good mechanism for justifying those legislative efforts, um, but also helping institutions in the short term uh, incrementally, you know, uh, push their advancement departments to build out bigger funds, right? To attract resources for the institution in the short term. So um, I think as we presented data to our partners, they've sort of become a little bit wider eyed and said, oh, this may be more of an issue than we thought, right? And I think that is emblematic of what's going on across the country, because if you look at the cost of living across the country, it's going up. If you look at the cost of tuition across the country, it's going up. Uh, and the federal financial aid system is not changing that rapidly you know, Joe, to your point, um, you know, cost of living is changing much faster than higher education is adapting to policy. So um, I think you're right. Whereas before this might have been a quote unquote public problem, um, perhaps it's not anymore, right? And private institutions and students who are attending these institutions are experiencing many of these issues as well. 100%. You want to follow that up, Jeffrey, or you want, you want me to jump in on you? No. No, you know, the, the only thing that, I, you know, not really a question, but David, um, well, I guess it is a question as I think about it, but, you know, I'm curious in your work. You realized that your question was a question just out of curiosity? You know, that those the us academics do that all the time. Okay, go ahead. I was looking for a reason to hit my incorrect button, but go ahead. I know. I, love it. I appreciate it. Um, 
David, uh, and now you almost made me forget my question, but my question is when you worked with these institutions, I'm curious about um, particularly the intersection that you found with community benefit organizations. And I'm, I'm kind of referring there to, you know, the, the Find Helps, uh, you know, the Unite Us, which obviously is, you know, started right in your backyard as well. I'm curious about if you've seen kind of intersection synergies there around your your work and their work and how they come together to support students, because I know there's been an increase of their work with higher ed as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we actually have partnered with Find Help and within our technology, we actually uh, represent the resource environment for students in partnership with that. So, you know, candidly, the intersection with access to public benefits now is inseparable, right? And this is a very interesting um, movement within post-secondary education that is underway is how you enroll students into more public benefit programs, right? Because if we're not financing education correctly so that there are student success line items, well, it turns out that the biggest student success line items are the traditional social safety net, right? Is how do you get students access to more, uh, you know, food and housing dollars? Uh, it, it actually could be through the safety net itself. So we know the state of Colorado just passed a bill to actually enroll more students into public benefits. And they have a really ambitious interagency initiative underway to try to figure out how can we more intelligently enroll students into public benefits. I know the state of Washington is trying to think about how they can create um, you know, more intersection uh, with their financial aid system and uh, public benefit system. Um, and you're seeing legislation uh, in states like California, Oregon, Illinois, where they're actually installing uh, a, a new role called a basic needs coordinator to make sure that students can access proximate resources around their campuses, including uh, public benefits. So it, this work deeply intersects. One of our partners, United Way of King County, is has a, a benefits hub that is installed on 11 community college campuses across the King County region. Uh, so more and more, we're seeing this intersection. Um, so uh, it's critical. It's, you know, we, you know like uh, Joe, like you said, you know, community college presidents are becoming experts in food. They're also becoming experts in navigating their local community and building these partnerships, right? Um, you know, uh, Dallas College and the city of Dallas have just tremendous matrix of community-based partnerships to represent these unique types of supports for students. So um, it's critical. It's really nuanced work. There's not a cookie cutter approach, right? Because you're really doing place-based, community-based partnership building, partnership development. Uh, but it is a, a huge effort that we see underway. You know, Equity has, you got like, what, 40 employees or a shade under 40? I was looking at your team. It's a, you got a big team, man. Congratulations on your growth. Thank you. Appreciate it. What did we not say about Equity today that you'd like to bring up, David? Was there anything in particular that you wanted to say on this podcast and Jeffrey just didn't do a good job of asking you the question? All the mine, my, I didn't ask you either, I guess, apparently, if you have something. But uh, usually I like to blame it on my co-host. And then, um, so anything you want to say about equity, um, anything, uh, you know, website, anything coming up, releases that you have? And then secondarily to that, tell me what you think the future of higher education is going to look like. Yeah, for sure. So I sort of two things there, and I won't blame Jeffrey for either. Um, but one where's is... My incorrect, where's my incorrect <laughs> button? One is uh, during the pandemic, what we saw from institutions around deployment of emergency aid is um, they were really uh, valuing distribution at scale the most, right? So how do we how do we prioritize speed at scale? And when you do that, you're really moving towards like automation, right? Uh, seeding agency, seeding control. Uh, when you're returning now to a more scarce resource environment, right? You want to be able to couple 
uh, the best of both worlds, right? When you're trying to process hundreds of thousands of applications and you can't necessarily engage in case management, right? But when you're processing tens or hundreds, you certainly can, right? And you can take advantage of best-in-class technology with best-in-class practitioner knowledge. So one of the things we've done is we've actually adapted our technology to lead with case management, right? Where we're making recommendations for partners based on what we know for about students, right? Where if they want to accept our automation, they can, but we're also giving a lot of agency back. So uh, we're, we're actually releasing our new case management version of our product this year, which we're really excited about. And I think there are a lot of exciting opportunities for how, uh, you know, Jeffrey, to your point, we're really connecting the work more to the proximate resource environment. Uh, so that is something that uh, uh, is actually being released this fall. Um, the other piece, though, is that we actually you know, recognize that the problem statement of application, verification, decision, payment, reporting, uh, it describes not just you know, uh, aid and education, but every cash assistance program uh, that local and state government are responsible for. Uh, and we've actually begun to support local and state government across the country in the administration of various programs, including emergency rental assistance, water utility assistance programs, right? So we're actually directly supporting government. And our vision and our hope is that we can marry these two verticals, right? That we can actually uh, be directly enrolling students into public benefits over time. And that will require place-based coordination, right? State coordination, system coordination, uh, interagency data sharing agreements, and it's ambitious work, but the end goal, right, is how can you reduce friction for students? How can you restore dignity in application processes, right? How can you make it as easy as possible to get students to support what they need? So, Amazing. So those are sort of two of the big things here, and then I guess, Joe, to answer your question about the future of education, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly concerned about um, the rising cost of living without aggressive structural policy reform on the front end, and I think that's reflected in um, you know, the tremendous loss of student enrollment that we've seen over the last two years, right? I think we've seen a four percentage point decline year over year, and uh, that's much more pronounced, not just at community colleges, but around, among Black students in particular, right? So the equity implications of, of the direction of higher education today is really concerning. Um, so I think students are going to continue to opt for these sort of shorter, cheaper pathways that are more flexible, right? I think that's why you see institutions like Southern New Hampshire, Western Governor is doing really well um, because their value proposition right now in an environment where cost is just out of control, right? And there's so many factors that students are grappling with in their lives. Um, they need as much flexibility and the cheapest and shortest pathway to credential attainment that will meaningfully translate into some form of employment outcome. So, um, you know, I'm hopeful for policy reform over time. And I think that will certainly restore a lot of these loftier ROI conversations or the, the value proposition of post-secondary education, but um, certainly concerned about many of the trends that I'm seeing in the short term. That's awesome, man. Well, this has been uh, incredible to learn about EdQuity, the work that you're doing to support higher education. I encourage everybody to reach out to David. Uh, if, if you have emergency fund distribution that you're monitoring in a manual or spreadsheet kind of way, you need technology or else you're going to just be wasting staff dollars on that stuff. Important work, but a lot of work goes into to managing something like that. First, let me thank my co-host. He's Jeffrey Roche. He's Senior Vice President for Education. Jeffrey, uh, as always, thank you, my friend, for uh, being entertained or entertaining, depending on uh, what, where you're, what you think about the podcast. But I always love you having you here to co-host. Absolutely. It's always entertaining. But let me, let me just say um, that, you know, at Equity's work really needs to be applauded. 
uh, particularly because of the commitment to equity. Well, thank you, Jeff. We appreciate that. You know that that work is so important. And while we'll, while we know we'll continue to have the systemic issues when we have solutions like this, it moves us a little bit further uh, in our quest for equity. So congratulations, and and continue to do all you can to help. And and all of us need to do the same. And there he is, ladies and gentlemen. His name is David Helene, and he is CEO of Equity. David, we hope you had a good EDIP experience today. What would you think? Really enjoyed it. I enjoyed talking with you both, and uh, also really appreciate both your commitment and equity. So thanks so much for having me, and really appreciate the conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, you've just ed-upped. Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education by Kate Colbert and Joe Salustio with contributions by Elvin Freitas is now available for pre-order on Amazon. Get your Kindle edition or your softbound book. It's going to be amazing.